and welcome back to VoxBurner's Youth Trends podcast. This week, we're bringing you an interview with one of America's most influential tech founders, Dan Porter, CEO of the fast-growing sports app, Overtime. We chatted to Dan ahead of YMS New York this September, where he'll be joining our panel on peak choice and the power of content discovery. Richard Jackson here from Voxburner. Oh, hey, how's it going? It would be awesome if you could um, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your background, and the role that you play over at Overtime. Sure. I'm Dan Porter, the co-founder and the CEO of Overtime. Uh, Overtime is actually my third startup. I started the first online ticketing company, which I sold the Ticketmaster for $40 million, and then I was in the mobile games company, and I made a very popular mobile game, and I sold that for $200 million, and this is the third attempt at it, <laughs> and in the uh, in the interim from all of that, I've done stuff like work for Sir Richard Branson and Virgin for three years, worked on investments in North America, and prior to overtime, I was the head of digital at WMEIMG, which was the largest talent agency in the world. And then before I got into all this entrepreneurial stuff, I was a public school teacher in Brooklyn and the founder, or not the founder, I was on the founding team of a large educational nonprofit. So I spent almost eight years in educational nonprofit working with kids across the country. Fantastic. And, and, and what was it that made you take the leap from your role within the education background and then in that sector moving into this more entrepreneurial persona that you that, that, that you are now? In the 90s, there was a whole crop of kind of nonprofits and I guess you guys call them NGOs essentially and educational nonprofits that were kind of looking at new ways to solve challenges across community service, homelessness, education, started primarily by young people. And a couple of them started at the same time, so there was this real movement. And they were very just entrepreneurial in nature. It wasn't like they had a mindset that we're going to do something entrepreneurial. They were just, a, as there are sometimes, uh, trying to do new things. And in that process, I, w- I worked with one of them, with Teach for America, for almost five years. And I, I really, I really enjoyed and was very committed to attacking problems of educational inequity and other stuff like that. But I also really enjoyed the kind of fast-moving company side. And in and of itself, it was very entrepreneurial. And at some point, something that I think I had gotten into because of the service aspect of it and because I wanted to make a difference, I realized that in the operations of it, I enjoyed all of the things that kind of were similar to a for-profit startup. And that really helped shape me directionally and realized that I wanted to take what I had learned there and kind of start businesses and startups based Fantastic. on that. Fantastic. And could you t- tell us just a little bit more about Overtime, you know, what, what that actually is for, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar just at the moment? Sure. With Overtime, we're trying to build the biggest sports network in the world. And I think when you unpack that, You have questions about what does a sports network mean in this day and time and everything else like that. But the fundamental premise was that 
when I was working at the sports and the talent agency, I worked with a lot of sports broadcasters and sports teams and sports leagues. And it became very clear back then, three or four years ago, which now is more widely known and accepted, that the younger audience just wasn't watching, you know, three-hour live sport events like they used to. They still cared about it, but the whole patterns have shifted. And this is the same, you know, the difference between listening to the radio and streaming music, watching live television and Netflix. You have this whole kind of disruption in the media space. And all of the kind of traditional sports networks were throwing up their hands and saying, my gosh, we need this young audience. But, you know, they were very, you know, trapped in what their traditional business was, which was still very lucrative for them. And so I was sitting there kind of running the digital talent division at the agency, representing all the biggest YouTubers. And here on this side were a whole bunch of talented young people making content uh, that other young people wanted to watch on YouTube, on Instagram. And then on the other side, on the sports space, it was just kind of open. And so I kind of put those two things together and said, if we started a brand new sports network from scratch for young people, what would it look like? Well, it would start by not trying to have a channel, but by publishing on YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter. It would start by telling the story of, like, the coolest, amazing young athletes so that people could follow their journey as they make it to the NBA or the EPL or anywhere else like that. It would be short form and long form. It would be digital first. It would be funny. It would be focused on community and fan engagement. And so all of those are kind of pieces that make overtime. So overtime is where, you know, every month 30 to 40 million young people on lots of different channels watch uh, sports content that they care about, watch, you know, kids who have just made it to the NBA or about to make it to the NBA, watch stuff that is funny, that is inspiring, uh, and participate in the community and feel like, wow, maybe there's a chance one day that my video might be on overtime. Yeah, okay. Fantastic. And from working on overtime, what would you say that you've learned around the Gen Z sports fans and maybe how they differ from old generation fans? Yeah, I'd say there's a couple of big things that I've learned. I think for me, as a personal, as a sports fan and growing up, sports was kind of whistle to whistle. You know, the, the, the game started and the game ended. And I think for our audience, they have a very broad conception of sports. So if I take a soccer player and I bring them to Times Square in New York City, because we're based in New York City, and I have them nutmeg tourists walking by, my audience loves that. They're not like, well, that's not on a pitch. That doesn't count as soccer. They have a very expansive idea of what sports is. And so it kind of frees us up to feature all kinds of people and tell all kinds of stories. The second thing is that it tends to be very, very personality-driven. And, and for more traditional sports fans, again, like myself, like lots of people, they're kind of ride or die for their team. This is the team that they've grown up with and everything else like that. I think for our audience, they're very focused on individuals and following the stories of those individuals. And I think you see that a lot in, in the NBA and pro basketball where LeBron James will change teams and all the fans will follow him to the new team. Sure. And so for us, it never became about here's the score, here's the standings, here's the stats. Instead, I think it became for our audience really about 
you know, here are the people you care about and here are the stories behind them. And I think the the third thing was that the Gen Z generation, I think some of this is coming off the millennials as well, they want to be a part of something that they feel ownership on or they can participate in. And when you look at traditional media, whether it's sports or news or cooking or other things like that, it tends to be very much that you put content on a screen and then you're expected to either sit on a couch or lie in bed or sit at your desk and watch and consume that content. And for our Gen Z audience, they want to be part of that content. There is a lively debate in the comments. They want to share it. They want to remix it. They want to send us videos and say, hey, I want to be on this content. Mm-hmm. They want to say shout out to Overtime and be on our story. Like there's a real desire to participate. And the idea that in a way Overtime is almost more of a community than it is a pure media channel is a really subtle point. It's kind of a hard point to put in a PowerPoint deck. But I think that's what that's what makes the difference. And so – you know, we were based in New York. North America is our biggest audience. But when we were recently in Europe, we could walk through certain places. You know, we were walking by the Eiffel Tower with some of our talent, and they were wearing a shirt, and kids were screaming at them, shout out to Overtime, Overtime. <laughs> One of our guys actually just uh, is in Vegas and slipped and hit his head on the ground. And when he was taken into the emergency room, kids were running up to him and saying, shout out to overtime, overtime. And I think that's really different. You know, they're not, they're not saying shout out to Sky Sports or shout out to ESPN. <laughs> they don't feel an ownership. They feel like those are entities that, that deliver content or news to them, whereas we really try to build something that's based on community. And I think for me personally, I ran a community gaming site for five years. You know, we had a million people who would log on and play games together. And you really learn a lot about kind of what community means and what drives it. And it's much deeper than liking somebody's comments or anything else like that. And in our kind of we have a we have a pro Fortnite team in, in the video game space. And we're doing tryouts tonight where thousands of kids can participate and maybe they're going to get a chance to make it on the team. But this very kind of ground up grassroots approach to that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. This leads like quite nicely on, on to my next question around what tips would you say that you picked up for, for brands listening that want to build a community around their product um, very much in, the, in a similar vein that you've been able to do to create this, this very much like loyal following of people the field, you know, a part of something? I would say, first and foremost, like, you think a lot about voice. You know, we don't talk at our audience. We talk, you know, to them and with them. Uh, that's how the brand was built. That's how our captions are. Uh, again, it's less of, like, a, a one-way delivery and more like a two-way dialogue. Mm. And I think there's a, a, a lot of smart young brands that, that do that. Number two is you, you really you need to have a face in some way. And sometimes that's the, the founder who's the face behind that. Um, for us, it tends to be some of our homegrown talent, you know, where – where they're really part of it. It's not like we've hired an influencer who we paid to say something for the brand and then they went to another brand. It's about 
people who are on our team who work with us, whose DNA is tied to the brand, who as we grow, the talent grow, uh, and it gives people a face to it. I mean, we have a second account, which is just literally like people in the office and who they are. Everybody who works here has overtime in their Instagram name. And it really, it's very transparent. It's accessible. People, people know. And in fact, you know, I am not really the face of that. I, it's a, it's a content, you know, and community play for a younger audience. And I am not young. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we were, when we're out, sometimes I'm managing or I'm out with the team and I'll just bring my camera. And they'll see the talent, and they'll be like, overtime, you're here. And they'll see overtime Larry and our talent. And they'll look at me, and they'll say, well, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm just a photographer for overtime Larry and, and other ways. But, you know, they want to connect with those people who are the brand. And, you know, on a personal level, I, it's not about me. I'm, I'm interested in giving those, them those people with whom I think that they really connect with. Um, and then uh, I, I'd say really, you know, it, maybe it's a little bit cliche, but you, you spend, especially in the video space, a lot of time thinking about storytelling. And stories and narrative structures are really a way to organize information for people. It's kind of like when you interview someone for a job, you kind of remember that person who tells you that incredible story as opposed to the person who just answers questions. And so when we have stuff that we want to share with our audience, uh, other things like that, when we can put them in the form of stories, which are different for every platform, they're visually different and the text is different, it, it, it kind of really, it, it really loops people in. I, I think a lot about kind of what they say about television shows in a way that, you know, if you can get people to fall in love with the characters on your television show and season one and season two, even if season three goes off the rails, the audience is so invested in the characters and those stories that they're willing to stay with you. And I think a lot about, you know, content that people consume and storytelling and how we can make that part of our brand. Yeah. Damn. A, gr- a great analogy there. I like it. And on that, what do you think more traditional media brands could learn from Overtime's success with the Gen Z audience? So I think a couple of things. First of all, Like, there really is a path, I think, to talk to young people and understand that. It tends less to be focus groups. You know, focus groups are very structured. They feel like classrooms to young people. And for us, you know, we have a combination of people who are just out in the field. They might be at a basketball game. They might be looking at the athletes we follow and what they're wearing, uh, we have nine different Instagram accounts, and we direct message kids who talk to us on all of those accounts. And so, in a way, there's a very informal and less structured way, but it all kind of feeds in as to what resonates with our audience, what are they thinking, and things like that, as opposed to a very structured way that a traditional company says, hey, what are you thinking? Do you like A or do you like B? Mm. And so we also know because we see which content resonates with them. And so there are lots of things. I can give you a specific example, which is, you know, I was working more and more on figuring out a specific time type of sports content. And so we, we were just talking to our fans, DMing, direct messaging them, 
And it really, I learned a lot about the power of kind of group chats and how all these group chats on different platforms really structure information sharing for young people, asking them, how do you find out this and that? And so then we kind of repositioned and said, oh, we have to start to imagine that every piece of content that we make, you know, in this direction, is that something that's shareable in a group chat? Is that something that's useful to our audience rather than just entertaining? And so really understanding their patterns. And, and I think secondly, understanding that the audience on every single platform is different. The Snapchat audience is really different than the Instagram audience. And there's not this idea that somebody who likes us just follows us on every platform. We have standalone followers on, I think, every single platform. And so really how to program for them. And then I think there are other things which, you know, a, a company like ours has a greater ability to take a risk. You know, when we have ideas, we run with them. We don't have 17 meetings and push them through on a PowerPoint and everything else like that. And those are, those are little tests. And, and I think we learn a lot from those, from those little tests. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing is that people want to support brands that they feel like they can belong to and that when somebody watches an overtime video or wears an overtime shirt, they're saying like, hey, I'm in this community. Mm. And sometimes the simplest way for me to explain it is people think of our company and our brand like we are an influencer. And so if there is, you know, an athlete or a YouTuber or somebody else like that, who I love and I, I look up to and I want to be in their community, I understand really what the attributes of that person is. I understand how they're talking to me. I understand why I like them. I'm, you know, in their crowd. We've obviously seen this in the history of bands. You know, there are bands that create these diehard followers who will travel. They'll call them deadheads, other things like that. And so I think understanding that our brand, you know, that and that the brand of these traditional media companies has that potential to do that and to make that connection and and really kind of give that ownership willingly. I think somebody once said to me, the most powerful people are the people who are willing to give up power. Uh, I think that 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 that's one way that that traditional brands can really think about it. Great, thank you. And Dan, as, as a tech entrepreneur yourself, how do you feel about the rise in, in young people now really wanting to take the helm and start their own business? Any key thoughts on that that you'd be keen to share? I would say I feel both ways. On the one hand, I think it's, it's great because there's nothing more empowering than making something in the world that people use and get value from. and you know, you can make a, a video, put on a music festival, make an app, and then there's thousands of people who are using this thing who you don't know, and you've kind of moved culture forward and contributed some piece of value mm. in the world. And I think that's like, that's always what motivated me. I think that sometimes I worry that young people, you know, watch videos about entrepreneurs on YouTube or watch the social network movie or, or think that they understand on the surface kind of what it really means to go out and strike out on your own and do this, but don't fully understand on a deeper level. And I always encourage young people to work as much as they can 
perhaps beforehand, work for another startup, even work for a big company, because you've really got to add to your toolkit. For me, I didn't start my first company until I was 32 years old, and I think I had had four or five jobs by that point, and each one of those jobs, I kind of added something to my toolkit, so I had some basis of knowledge, because it's not just knowledge, it's muscle memory, it's pattern recognition, it's knowing how to read the market, how to work with people. And sometimes if you're starting a business and you're also trying to learn everything about what it means to work at the same time, those can be conflicting things and they can be enormously difficult. Yeah. And what do you feel that the key inverted commas, like mainstream brands, can learn from, I guess, this startup entrepreneurial culture? I think that large companies and major brands, as they should be, are very focused on kind of short, medium, and long-term planning and execution. If you don't, if you don't have those goals, you can't run a big company. And yet, the advantage that a startup has is number one is it can be opportunistic. Somebody can walk in one day and have an opportunity, and you can just take a 90-degree turn and pursue that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost with the larger brand. I think the second thing is, you know, I've worked for three billion-dollar companies kind of doing what I do, which is, you know, kind of trying to engender new ideas and get them started. And when you have a really, really big company and you have a bunch of people who have a new idea and are trying to start something from scratch in that company, your ability to have a financial impact, a revenue impact, in the first year, two, or three, it's really, really small. I work for a big billion-dollar cosmetics company, and I have a new idea. It might take take me three years to even build a $5 million business there, and that just doesn't register Mm. on the income statement of that company. It's way easier to go out and buy other companies. And what happens is that the people inside the company tend to get frustrated because they can't make a big enough difference in a, in a short enough time, and the company has forced them to go out and buy other companies. But if you can give those people a lot of latitude, if you can nurture it over the longer term, you really can have innovation on the internal side. But I remember when I, when I worked at Virgin and I started a new company, and they said, well, you said in, in month nine you'd have X users, and instead you have half of X users. And I said, yeah, because there's no way that I could know. Like, this isn't a mature business that I'm strategically planning for. This is a new endeavor for us. And there was a lot of friction around that. And so uh, I think that, you know, big companies that are smart know how to nurture that. And, And sometimes they see the value that all of these new ideas might not be a standalone business, but they could start to you know, permeate different type of thinking within the bigger company. But but those are really, they're really hard things to do. Thank you. And Dan, just some quick rapid-fire questions as, as we're sort of drawing to a close. What would you say has been the best moment of, of your career so far, you know, a standout moment for you? I would say that when I was in the video games business, I'm making mobile games and, and browser-based games, there's a big gaming conference called GDC, the Game Developers Conference. It's in San Francisco every year. And I remember going one year and going to talks and, you know, everything else and looking at successful games and trying to learn as much as I could. Uh, and then 
but you know, I was just another person going to that. And I remember when we made our game draw something and it, you know, it had 50 million downloads in the first 50 days and going to that conference and realizing that every single person at that conference was talking about our game and that every person on the panel was talking about it. And I wasn't even on the panel because the game had launched later, so they didn't invite me to anything and they didn't think of that. And just like walking around and hearing people talk about that and being like, wow, like it's not that they're saying the importer is great or the company is great. We made something that everybody is looking at and resonates with them as the kind of collective result of our effort. And it was just really, it was like an out-of-body experience. It was really, it was amazingly cool and rewarding. Fantastic. Dan, favorite app and why? I would say my favorite app is probably Strava. I am a slow old man, but I like to cycle and occasionally run because I want to stay fit so I can make it to 100 and see my great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And once you start, you know, once you open it and it tracks how far you ride and you start to look at the data, you become, like, obsessed. Like, you asked me to go on a bike ride and you took my phone away and I couldn't log it into Strava in my goal to get to 500 miles or 1,000 miles, I might be like, oh, I don't really want to ride if I don't get credit for the ride. <laughs> sure. um, and it's just so, it's, it's rewarding on a personal level, but look, as a game designer, I think you're always thinking about the compulsions that people have and what makes them come back to an app and what makes them respond to a product. And so for me, I'm always unpacking, why am I so obsessed with knowing that I rode a tenth of a mile faster this time than last time? Cool. Something very few people know about you that, that you're happy to disclose on here. I would say most people probably don't know that I used to be a professional musician. Uh, I was a jazz musician. I studied for many years. I went to, you know, in the summer I went to Berkeley College of Music. I went to camp. And when I moved to New York in the late 1980s, I used to play the piano at venues around New York City, and as such, when I was in high school, I played weddings and bar mitzvahs and Sweet Sixteen and everything else like that, uh, and playing music was an enormously big part of my life, and I think it really, it, it was responsible for developing almost like a creative part of my brain, like I used to lie in bed at night and visualize and dream about different ways to put my fingers on the keys and different melodies and chord structures and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, most people see me come into an office or speak on a stage or do other stuff, and they, they don't know that uh, that I did that. And, and it was a, a huge rewarding part of my life and something that I do for fun on the side, but sure. I'm not out in front. Awesome. Um, Dan, I, I know you're joining us this September for YMS in New York. We'll have to get you um, a stage potentially to perform on now, or not? Uh, I, sure, <laughs> sure. I'll try. I'll, I'll try. I'll practice, and I'll right. try not to disappoint. Exactly. Um, and Dan, on that, I know you, you know you're going to be speaking on a on a panel on a, on our main stage around peak choice um, and the power of content discovery. What is it that we can expect to hear from you um, at, at YMS? Any sort of key key takeaways that that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I, I would say that if you look at the history of overtime, literally 
in a little over two years, you know, we built this really, really big company with a big reach that millions of people engage with, with a billion videos views a month. Like not not by like hacking social platforms and stuff like that, but but very deliberately. I mean, literally two years ago there were four people sitting in a room, uh, and now there's 80 people and there's 10 million followers across all the all the platforms. And so, kind of looking back over those last two years and understanding, everybody wants to publish content, everyone wants followers, and they want engagement. And so it's like, what did we do really? And what did we learn in all of our experiments along the way that really helped us come in? You know, we're not, we're, we're the millionth company in the kind of content and the social content space, but what helped us grow so rapidly and build a brand so quickly. Sure. And then that's just something that hopefully that you're going to be able to share with our audience this September. A hundred percent. Excellent. And, and Dan, finally, what is it that you're looking forward to about joining us? Uh, for YMS, yeah, this year? I think for me as an entrepreneur and from the CEO, none of my ideas and none of the things that we kind of pursue in our vertical in sports come from other sports companies. Like for me, listening to marketers and CEOs who talk about reaching Gen Z in the beauty space, you know, in the travel space, in those things, I find very stimulating and interesting because those people are thinking about a completely different problem set and the ability to kind of learn what they know and then apply it to your vertical as opposed to being in kind of just a silo of talking to other people in your vertical is really interesting and I think where some of the best ideas come from. So going to an event like this and hearing people out of my space talk about you know, how they're resonating and to the outside person, maybe somebody, you know, talking about cosmetics for teenagers, what does that have to do with, you know, basketball players going into the NBA? But I, I think there's a lot of subtle things in there and, and I find those things super interesting. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Dan, thank, thanks so much for joining us uh, this afternoon and, and, and sharing sharing those insights and looking forward to welcoming you this September for, for YMS. Yes. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. And if you want to hear more from him and over 100 more speakers, don't forget to secure your passes for YMS NYC this September and use the code PODCAST10 for a further 10% off at checkout. Have a great week and look forward to seeing you back here next Monday for some more Youth Trends.